Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kirk Rebincheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. On March 4th, I traveled to Florida to visit Everglades National Park and Big Cypress National Preserve. One reason was to head out into Big Cypress to see the landscape where an oil company conducted seismic exploration in 2017 and 2018 to see if there are recoverable oil deposits worth developing. I had heard the opinions of proponents and opponents of the work and wanted to see for myself what had been done to the preserve's landscape and how it was recovering. On the day I was out in the preserve, March 6th, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers sent Burnett Oil Company a letter stating that its work had, indeed, adversely impacted the preserve. Visit National Parks Traveler to come to your own conclusion, as our special report, Oil and Water in Big Cypress National Preserve, offers videos of some of the impacts. In the weeks ahead, we'll bring you features on the beauty of Big Cypress National Preserve and its Turner River Canoe Trail, as well as on exploring Everglades National Park and the state of overnight accommodations at Flamingo. In the past week on The Traveler, we brought you stories about the National Park Service's current decision to keep the parks open despite the coronavirus epidemic, and news that an operator has been hired to run the iconic Bluffs Restaurant along the Blue Ridge Parkway. Those and other stories from the National Park System can be found on nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show... Lynn Riddick continues her exploration of San Antonio Mission's National Historical Park in Texas with a segment on Mission Concepcion. And park lodging experts David and Kay Scott discuss the top-line lodges you would stay in if money were not an object. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. In the early 18th century, Franciscan friars founded the missions you find at San Antonio Missions National Historical Park. The goal was to convert the native people to Catholicism. Today, I'm at Mission Nuestra Señora de la Purísima Concepción de Acuña, better known as Mission Concepción. It's one of four that are preserved within the historical park. The mission is located just a few miles south of San Antonio's more famous mission, the Alamo, which is owned by the state of Texas and not part of the park. The chain of missions was built along a north-south line of the San Antonio River, each less than three miles from the other. The missions were founded by the Franciscans to convert the indigenous Quabaltecan Indians to Catholicism so that the Spanish crown could expand and control the new Spain frontier. They provided a haven safe from hunger, aggression, and disease. 
In exchange, natives were required to contribute labor for building the missions and all the essential tasks of daily living while adopting Christian doctrine and rituals. In 1731, Mission Concepcion was established on its present spot after having been transferred from its original location in East Texas. The mission compound here is a square space. It was originally defined by walls of limestone quarried from the banks of the nearby San Antonio River. Most of the walls and other limestone structures in and around the compound are gone. They either crumbled over time or were recycled by local residents needing the stone to build homes outside the mission walls after the mission was secularized in the late 18th century. The remnants of the missing walls and buildings have a certain historic charm because Mission Concepcion is the only mission in the chain that has not been restored in any way over the years. Within the space, a church looms. The mostly Roman-style structure has a cross-shaped footprint. The church features symmetrical bell towers that flank a central ornate iron cross in front of a massive dome. On a nice day, your backdrop will be a brilliant blue sky. A narrow enclosed stone staircase with uneven steps leads to what was once the Father President's office and can leave you feeling somewhat claustrophobic and off-kilter. You'll also see Moorish influences on the church, quatrefoil windows and colorful frescoes recalling geometric patterns from Moorish tile designs. As you stroll the grounds, and if your timing is right, you might stumble upon an informal tour given by Art Valdez, a park volunteer and a member of the church here. And these four Spanish missions are still active parishes. They have been active parishes since the early 1800s because of all 30 tribes are still represented here, San Antonio. We have Many parishioners living in the area today can easily trace their roots directly back to their ancestors who lived in the missions. I spoke with Tom Castanos, He's a park ranger and educational coordinator for the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park. He says the workmanship, art, and artistry based on Spanish culture helped create a cohesive church and mission community, even if the architecture was a bit varied. So it strikes me when you look at the missions, the architectural features from one to the next are somewhat of a blend of styles, mm -hmm. and even several styles are represented in one mission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the goal, I think, was to make this Spain. And just as if you were traveling through Toledo or Madrid, you find a variety of architectural styles in those communities. Of course, Spain was uh, controlled by Muslim people for a very long period of time before the Reconquista. 1492. So any old Spanish town is going to have Muslim architecture. It's going to have Christian architecture. It's going to have later Gothic European architecture. And I think you find that model here as well. You'll find Moorish arches and Roman arches. You'll find the combinations of all of those things that I think speaks of being Spanish more than anything else, because those are the cultures that blended that made the Spanish culture, they just simply transplanted it here. How long did it take for each mission to be built, um, start to finish? What was roughly the time frame for that? And were they being built at the same time? 
So the very first one built in the River Valley would be Mission Valero, the, the one we call the Alamo, that's 1718. Two years later, construction begins at the first Mission San Jose, actually on the other side, on the east side of the river. They find themselves in a little bit too low a ground for flooding, and they eventually move to the west side of the river where we are today. Uh, 1731 finds the transplantation of three uh, charters for missions from East Texas, Concepcion, San Juan, Espada, all begin construction here the same year in 1731. To say a mission is finished, <laughs> I don't think they're ever finished. They are constantly morphing to fit the population at that time, from small church to mud brick church to big grand stone church, this amount of housing changes to expand the compound to a larger amount of housing, bigger granary because now we have to produce more food for more mouths. Technology advances, the building of the mill here to grind wheat when wheat was finally successfully grown in this area. So they're just a constantly changing facility. Now, going back to what you said about sort of expanding and changing the missions as the populations grew, were changes made to make living conditions more comfortable the, the living quarters? That's a good question. I don't think so. That, that's not my gut instinct. I think it was always with the idea of more rather than, you know, we can do more with less and make everybody more comfortable. Now, there is a, there's a remark late in the time period that a friar speaks very uh, glowingly that for the first time, every person is sleeping in a bed off of the floor. So there was this kind of goal... But it was also at a time period where the population decreased dramatically. So I think there was simply more room for more individuals. And that must have been some kind of uh, shock to the neophytes when they came in and had to be, you know, so closely quartered with other people. Yeah, I, you know, that's an interesting point because we, we re anthropologically, archaeologically, we know that these native peoples prior to joining the missions either slept open air or under rock ledges, occasionally even in small caves and karst along the San Antonio River. So I actually don't know that these apartments felt that significantly different, other than very uniform and square. Um, you know, now we, we portray that these natives work on the floors of these apartments a lot, and people kind of go, that's terrible, but that's what they were used to. You know, they're not furnishing a cave. They're not furnishing a rock shelter that they live in maybe for 10 days before they move on to their next campsite. So I don't think, once again, it's very hard not to judge things from a 24th century mindset. I think they were reasonably comfortable. They were probably a little more crowded than they had been previously because you could always move off to another rock shelter. That's not the case here. So they're, they're probably on top of each other a little more. But as far as quality of structure, I don't know that it changed that much. In addition to living spaces for natives, there were quarters for the clergy and rooms for soldiers who lived on the premises to fend off Comanche and Apache attacks. As with the other missions, Concepcion was a fort and a village with a central plaza. There were spaces for food production, storage, and practicing of skills such as weaving and sewing. Mission life was a whole new way of life for native people. Friars imparted knowledge through a slow, systematic, repetitious approach. The native people shared information among themselves as they learned to farm and ranch and eventually fend for themselves when the missions were secularized.
Walking around inside what was probably an office, you get a feel for what the space and light were like 300 years ago. In here, I see an original fresco from 1756. It's a cross surrounded by what appears to be flowers and pots. The colors are muted reds, golds, and blues. Frescoes like this with religious and secular symbols were common on the walls inside and outside of the church and within other mission structures. They were an important part of learning about the Catholic faith. Some new frescoes have even been discovered in recent years from cleaning and stabilization efforts on walls and ceilings. Tom Castano says that the establishment of a mission didn't happen by accident. It was well thought out and planned. How were the local priests and Franciscan friars trained and prepared before they were tasked with establishing a mission? Mm -hmm. so, so most of them have already been, if they're priests, they've already been ordained. They've already been trained in the Franciscan order. But the next step, these colleges, for example, here at San Jose, the college in Zacatecas, trained them to work amongst the native people. So again, they would be trained to be administrators. They would train, be trained to maintain inventories and have some theory study on what to expect. Um, they may even also gain vocational training so that they can become the teachers that teach the natives how to weave, how to sew, how to do farming. Specialists might be sent up, but these friars often would be those specialists as well. And I suppose the language barrier was a challenge. Um... I understand there were 18 different languages or so there, it, spoken by the natives. And how were the language differences uh, overcome? Um, I, I wonder <laughs> about that all the time. You know, I, to not make fun of it, but I, I can't help but draw this image of a kid and watching like Johnny Weissmiller and some of those old Tarzan. You know, it's kind of very pantomimish or maybe the terrible old Lone Ranger kinds of things. But not to make fun of it, it has to start there. It has to start with the most rudimentary things of like food and water and name and self where you just, you're this person, I'm this person. Um, but I think what happens is if you take a modern family of, you know, mom, dad, 30 odd years old, you know, kids eight and four, and you're going to teach them all something new, who learns the fastest? Those little ones pick it up immediately then in turn, I think those children help the parents learn it. It's not that children, parents can't learn. It's just every day we're older, we're a little more set in our ways and don't want to change. And then because lifespans were not terribly long in this time period, it would not be long before those children were now the adults and training their children. So early on, it had to be a nightmare. But I think it changed pretty rapidly. And all you needed was a nucleus of these people that spoke both languages to help the newer ones come in. So in addition to languages, there was a lot to learn. Um, you know, there was religion, there were construction skills, mm -hmm. farming, ranching. How did the friars approach this instruction? Patience of Job? I, I really, it's, I think in a lot of ways, these men if you'll pardon the pun, a match made in heaven, they were the perfect choice for this. I mean, I think they, they had to be remarkably patient. I think their vows suggested that they also needed to be. Um, 
Franciscans in this time period in Spain were typically recruited from some of the poorest classes of people, so they didn't have that kind of lordly uh, position over these people. I think they were likely very poor farmers themselves at one point in time, or at least their families were. So I think there was a, a, an empathy for the people that allowed them to be very patient in that teaching. As for how the teaching actually occurred, as the natives see the value of the farm work that these people are bringing along, I think they're very eager to want to learn how to do it because food and the lack thereof it was such a huge part of their lives. How was the religious life organized around all the other work that had to take place in the missions? I tend to believe it was completely interrelated in every opportunity that they could make it. Everything is going to be a parable of some passage from the Bible. Um, most assuredly, early on, as we suggested, the natives probably kind of just went along with the program so that they could gain what they needed. But, you know, as far as Spain was concerned, you were not a citizen of Spain at that time period unless you were Catholic. It's real easy to think about these missions as religious movements, but it's still a government project to make citizens, citizens that you can put in the military, citizens that you can get all of this labor from, citizens that legitimize that claim that this is all Spain. Uh, for the friars, pardon me, they recognize that political need, but for them, they were raised with the idea of a calling of spreading the gospel, saving souls, things like that. So I think they took their vows largely pretty seriously. And because of that passion and compassion, I think it occurred kind of seamlessly as much as can possibly be done in the environment we're talking about. What kind of records did the friars keep on mission living and religious conversion? And to what degree were they fully accountable to the church and to Spain? Their records are pretty remarkable. Where we're missing records, it's not their lack of record keeping. It's more about just the survival of the documents. Um, they're very analytical. It's very much ledger-oriented. We had this many cattle this day. We had this many calves born. We gave away this many or traded this many. Even when it comes to the native records, it's this many births, this many deaths, this many baptisms, this many weddings. It's very, very columns, very, very accounting-like. What we don't tend to find are nearly as many narrative records where they speak fluently about, oh, these people did this and this and this. Some of those occur in personal correspondence. But by and large, the official records are tremendously uh, very thing-driven, very, uh, very uh, inventory-like. Tell me a little bit more about the construction skills and some of the other skills that were needed inside the missions. Yeah, I mean, stone masonry to quarry and cut stone to be put in place to the chemical compound that makes up the, the lime mortar that puts the walls together. Um, physics of hauling stone up in high places, building handmade custom scaffolding and block and tackle and ropes and pulleys. You know, it's, it's remarkable to think without the equipment that we watch them build the corner store with that they're building five-story stone churches. Now, it might take them 22 years to complete one because it's being done by hand, but there, there's a skill set there that, I mean, it's ancient in its own right, in European and even in some parts of, of the Americas, of course, the ancestors uh, 
Aztec, you know, Maya, whatever, were all magnificent stonemasons by their own right, but people here weren't. So that was a brand new skill set brought by European minds to this area. So I read on one of the park's placards that the friars knew from the outset that it might not be easy to convert the native people to Christianity. And sometimes they had to go hundreds of miles into the wilderness to bring back Indians who had fled the missions. That's right. Tell me about that. Well, like, you know, the, the example of the, the, the San Juan Rebellion or whatever, you know, they, they went as far as uh, present day, like Rockport, Texas, to retrieve some of these people. Because when you found a group that were willing to participate and you'd already invested a significant amount of time in breaking the language barrier and things like that, I think they believed it was easier to go track them down than it was to start over from scratch with a new group of people. There's an investment at that point in time in those people. Um, and I think they recognized their own flaws and saw, well, we crossed the line here. We can do better there or we can, maybe they didn't really recognize the flaws, but they at least saw things that they could do that they thought that they could bring them back. So uh, the workforce was critical. Back to the point that these aren't slaves, um, there's, there, they, they show in their own convoluted way that they did care for these people. Make no mistake, these are low-level caste people that have no ability of upward mobility. They have no freedom of movement, all of that. But having said all of that, it's so easy to judge that from a very 21st century uh, freedom mindset. For its era, they are what they are, but I think that people were reasonably compassionate to them. So when they would apprehend, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. uh, someone who had left the mission, was it a matter of coaxing them or was there, you know, uh, physical uh, force that took place? It appears from records both. Through about the 1780s, we find that bringing people back was through coaxing, through a promise of a lighter workload, a promise of a larger cut of food. Sometimes it's the promise of a larger share of chocolate or some specialty thing. By about the 1790s, it does take a darker turn. Spain becomes a little bit more desperate. The situation is harder. And there's a couple of records of groups of people being brought back bound. And that's certainly no more coaxing. That's, that's by force. But it appears to be as Spain is beginning that down cycle of failure in this area that the desperation causes them to act in more desperate fashion. How did the friars incorporate what was important to the native people into religious understanding? The church had a good track record of including things. Now, I think we can debate all day long whether it was done in good faith or it was done more as trickery. I mean, it's glass half full, glass half empty. We're not going to go what the intention was. We're just going to talk about what was done. Things like Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, that is not a thing in most of the rest of the Catholic world. You know, that has its origins in death cults of where people do ancestor worship that was added to the Catholic religion on the basis of it being very similar to All Saints, All Souls Day, which is where we practice Dia de los Muertos, you know, early November. So they were good at helping people try and understand things. But oftentimes they would say, well, this is what you believed, but this is what we call it. And they would find places where their dogma kind of connected 
to help that process of going from one to another. And speaking of death, what happened to the Indians who died in the missions? Were there burial grounds? Yes. So the burial grounds at each of the missions are largely the Campo Santo, the sacred ground, right out in front of or beside all of the churches. So those full members of the congregation would receive a full Christian burial. There's a little debate what happened to those that had not had that process. But in many cases, there was a great rush to uh, give last rites and bring them into the fold before they died, if that was something. It wasn't, you know, a, a sudden death or something like that. So uh, they're, you know, their success rate is based on how many souls they save. And even perhaps their finances are determined from the king on their success rates on those kinds of things. So, I mean, one hand, I think they had a, a, a calling to do it, but also I think their their finances were tied to it as well, just like a modern-day uh, a sales goal or something. I don't want to belittle it, but I think it's it has a similar feel to it sometimes. And so, mission inhabitants became Catholics loyal to the Spanish king. They also became skilled farmers and ranchers. And the key to their success, an ample supply of clean water. That was certainly a challenge in this drought-prone part of the world. In my next episode, I'll head to Mission Espada. I'll tell you about how an ancient yet sophisticated system of acequias, aqueducts, and dams funneled water to hundreds of acres of farmland. This allowed the production of food and the missions to prosper and thrive. For National Parks Traveler, I'm Lynn Riddick. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. If money wasn't an issue, where would you spend your night in the national park system? Old Faithful Inn with a view of the iconic geyser? Or maybe the Altavar Hotel at Grand Canyon National Park with that gaping maw in the earth just a short walk away. 
Those are just two of the iconic high-end lodgings in the national park system. They're beautiful, rich in history, pampering at times, and decidedly expensive. But sometimes, it's okay to splurge. And to help you decide where to spend your lodging dollars, we've asked David and Kay Scott, authors of The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, to join us so we could pick their brains. Welcome to The Traveler, David and Kay. Yeah, nice to talk with you again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, if money were no object, you guys have traveled the park system a time or two, where would you stay? I probably would pick the Awani. I mean, it's just, it was built to be the hotel and uh, attract all the rich people from the east out west. And it's, they've kept it up. It's always beautiful. There's never been any rundown time. Um, I just thoroughly enjoy the Awani. <laughs> the, room, the rooms and the uh, public, especially the public areas uh, on the main floor, are really outstanding, and uh, we've, I don't know, we've stayed there either two or three times, I, I can't remember, and we always visited whenever, we camped a lot in Yosemite Valley also, mm-hmm. but uh, whenever we do, we, we always visit the Iwani, and uh, if nothing else, it's it's worth it if you're in the valley just to eat in the dining room, because it has the most outstanding dining room in any park lodge in the country. It really does. It's. Uh, I've had a few good meals there myself. So did you book the presidential suite? <laughs> we have seen it. I want you to know we've seen it. But we know we just stayed in a standard room, <laughs> which isn't quite standard. But they're not real big, but they're lovely. Once we were there and uh, we asked a, a housekeeper. maid, housekeeper, if she could show us a suite. And she said, sure. So she knocked on the uh, the door, housekeeping, as they always do to make sure no one's in there. Bella comes to the door and... Uh, no, she was ready to turn the key and no, open it. She was. <laughs> he thought we were taking a survey, oh, right. uh, but he was nice enough to allow us in and uh, to look around his room. Uh, and he was there. He was going to stay quite oh, a while, right, as I remember. Right. But it's really a... Had a lovely suite. It's, it's, I think many people would consider the Iwani to be the crown jewel of of all the national park lodges. Perhaps, perhaps. And uh, as the saying goes, if if you need to ask the price, you probably can't afford to stay there. Um, I checked uh, a little while ago, and um, if you wanted to go to the Iwani, May 31st, um, which I think is the only available room date um, left for the near future, $589. And the, the presidential suite is, is just uh, about twice that, um, $1,221. Right, right. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive for sure. (laughs) And that doesn't include any meals. Right. The first time we went, I said, okay, this will be my birthday present, (laughs) spending the the night in Iwani, because it is is quite... Quite expensive. She she was much younger then, and the, the price was under three hundred dollars a night. It was. Yeah. It was. So after after the Iwani, um, where would you head? Well, one place actually that we've never stayed is uh, Jenny Lake Lodge in Grand Teton National Park. We I visited about there. We well, we visited there numerous times, and uh, they they generally allow us to take a, a tour. Uh, we saw several of the cabins on our last, we were there a couple years ago, and uh, we've eaten there. Uh, we ate lunch there, but uh, the cabins are very nice, but the, the price at, um, at at Jenny Lake 
they run over eight hundred dollars a night, and really, and uh, it, it's a it's it a did, stunning price. It does it does include breakfast and a five course gourmet dinner, and if uh, you want to go horseback riding, you can go horseback riding, and they do have some few special events. How much are the dinners there? If you remember, we talked to him about how much it costs to go to dinner. I think it's over a hundred dollars. I think it's over a hundred dollars for dinner per person. Per person, uh-huh. yeah. And as I recall, um, the gentlemen are expected to wear jackets. I think that's right. Yeah, those. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> We've I don't never know had dinner I, there. <laughs> no, I don't know if I have a jacket left. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, I think he does. Okay, <laughs> but you got to admit it's a breathtaking setting right there beneath the Grand Teton. You can sit out on your little porch of those cabins, and there they are, just gorgeous. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and it, and it's quiet. It's a quiet area mm-hmm. of what can sometimes be a pretty busy park, and uh, so, some of the other uh, places, Jackson Lake Lodge, it, we, which we've stayed at, and really enjoy that also. But it's a much much quieter place at Jenny Lake Lodge, and they don't have many cabins to begin with, and uh, it's, it's really pretty, but it's very expensive. I think. Probably not counting the suites at the Awani, the most expensive, probably the most expensive room in the National Park Service, don't you think? Yes. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Um, stay there. <laughs> Take your wife, Kurt. Yeah, yeah. I'll put it on the traveler. Okay. Um, there you go. As I was surfing around um, this morning, I, I checked uh, the Many Glacier Hotel at Glacier National Park, and... Um, it looks like you can top out at about $460 a night for a park view room. Right, a park view. And, and their suites are nice. They're not the luxury suites that you find that have been updated like in the Awani or El Tovar. But they're they're nice. They're quite nice. But the, the Mini Glacier is uh, usually the first hotel in Glacier Park to fill. And uh, it it probably the most spectacular location of, of any national park in the country. And we've stayed there, and um, sometimes when we can't get a room there, we'll stay at Swift Current, which is uh, just a walk uh, down the road, and then we'll go back and visit Many Glacier. When when they've been booked up, they still had rooms at Swift Current, which is nearby. Mm-hmm. And the, the lobby of both um, Many Glacier and Glacier Park Lodge are well worth the time to just go in and sit down and admire the uh, logs that make the beams or the trees, the trees, yeah, yeah, the pillars, just amazing. And at Many Glacier, um, they recently did a quite a substantial uh, renovation. It, it it took a number of years, and didn't they um, return that um, circular um, staircase that went from the main floor down to the it downstairs? Yeah, I kept thinking they were putting it in; it was going to go upstairs. But then I finally dawned on me that it's going downstairs. <laughs> Yes, they did put it back. Mm-hmm. Another one that was recently um, built or redone, considering the age of many of them, is Cavallo Point, the Lodge at the Golden Gate, mm-hmm. which is just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And it was the old Fort Baker, and they've taken that and taken the historic buildings and, and turned them into rooms and suites. The old officers' buildings, right. residences. And then they've also built new ones uh, that are much more contemporary. But that was built kind of to be a destination in itself because it has a spa and the tennis courts and they have yoga classes. Mm-hmm. And that um, can be a hefty. If you, 
if you'll pay ahead, it's only $542. If you want to wait, it's $638. Wow. But the next part with the $638 is that you're going to pay 25% of that um, additional in not only taxes, but the resort fee. They have a national park so, fee there, don't they? Oh, the national park fee is like... $40 a night? I think so. It's wow. quite high. Quite but you high. get free muffins in the morning, as I remember. You do. Yeah. It's quite good. <laughs> and they are good. So Worth worth the price. Worth that extra $40. And I you get a good view. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, I just wonder why it's an extra $40, because, you know, National Park Pass will get you into the park, and, you know, many parks is 20 or $30. Yeah. Well, of course, Golden Gate... A national recreation area doesn't have an admission fee, mm. and I think that the, the part of that goes to the whole uh, idea that the Park Service is now having tight budgets. I think more so than in the past, they're trying to generate revenues off the lodging facilities that they have, and I think that's true in most of the parks now. They they just they can generate a lot of money that way, and they and they feel that they need it, and that's probably a good place to get it. Well, we're, we're working here at the Traveler on a, a story just about that on on some of these lodging rates, and um, what the folks at Yellowstone told me is that the concessionaire, in this case, is Antero Parks and Resorts. They're expected to do a lot more upkeep and maintenance, and so um, they're allowed to charge a, a little bit more than um, they have in the past to to cover those costs. I and, think that's right. And especially with these old buildings, um, it takes a lot of upkeep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I guess the question, though, is these buildings are owned by the federal government, so why does not Congress provide the revenues to maintain them and keep the lodging rates a little bit more reasonable? Oh, I don't have an answer for that. Right. I, we have to talk to Congress. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It's just an easy, it's an easy place to cut uh, cut the budget. Cut the budget, I think, and allocate it to, I, I don't know, the wall of Mexico, maybe. <laughs> We're talking with David and Kay Scott, authors of The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, about the high-end lodgings in the national park system and where, if money were no object, you would park your bags and spend a couple nights. We'll be right back in a minute. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom Three, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. 
Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So David and Kay, um, Yellowstone National Park, one of my favorite national parks, and it's got some incredible lodges. Lake Hotel is truly one of the most elegant lodges in the park system, in my humble opinion. Um, that's, we agree. That's, we definitely agree. We love that yeah. one, too. The cost of... Uh, I, bet, I bet Kurt already checked Oh, do you know the price? I bet he does. Um, you know, I, I didn't jot down the date, but it's roughly three hundred, roughly $400 a night when you to- toss in the taxes and fees. And that's on the backside. <laughs> no. If you go to the front of the hotel... Uh, a basic room could run you $610. Right. But the suites are unbelievable. They're just lovely. <laughs> Have you been in one of the suites? How much are they? Well, the suites, I didn't write down the price, but they're well over 1000 I think so, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? I I think the a number of years ago, I think both the Park Service and, and Zantera decided they were going to make uh, Lake Hotel the show place in, uh, in the park. Uh, and not Old Faithful Inn, but yeah. that was going to be the show place. So they put a lot of money in it, and uh, they redesigned uh, the downstairs, uh, the reception area. Mm-hmm. And, and took it back to the old look. With yeah, the and, and then they've done an extensive renovation. That I think a lot of money was spent on the, just the foundation. Mm-hmm. So they decided that that was going to be their Awani of, the, of, the, uh, of Yellowstone National Park. So... I think that's about the time that rates started going up significantly, and and it is it, it's very expensive. I agree with you. And it, it's beautiful. I mean, uh, pure elegance from the rooms down to the the sunroom, where in the afternoon you can go down for a, a beverage of your choice and enjoy the Yellowstone Lake shimmering beyond the windows. Maybe some bison uh, in the yard, and then you might have a string quartet. Yes, exactly. Usually, either a string quartet or the piano. It's one of the it's it's one of the most enjoyable places to stay of any lodge in any national park. I agree. Yeah, yeah. but you you drive across the park and, and go to the Old Faithful Inn, and and it's not as elegant, but it is so rich in history. And if you want to go peak summer season, you're going to be paying four hundred and fifty plus a night for a a simple queen room in the Old Faithful Inn, which uh, certainly. The price puts it in the um, the upper echelon of, of National Park Lodging, but I, I just love that building, and the, the setting is incredible. Oh, I, oh, I right, do, too. We right. do, too. But you know what? The, the, the big negative that we found about Old Faithful End is uh, it, it's terrific in the morning, in the early mornings when I, I can't sleep, so I get up and go down to the lobby, and later in the evenings, but during the daytime, it's just jammed with people. Uh, roaming around, buses stop there and let people off. Uh, and it, w- if I was only going to visit uh, Yellowstone one time, I would stay in Old Faithful Inn. But if I was coming back, I really like to stay in a more restful Old Faithful Snow Lodge. The rooms are more modern. I mean, they, they're made to look vintage, but uh, it's a much quieter place to stay, and you can still walk to Old Faithful Inn uh, in the morning or in the evening if you want to. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I really, I've always liked that hotel, but <laughs> it's a matter of opinion, I guess. What about Death Valley? Have you been to Death Valley? Sure, he has. That that was the next uh, next place on my agenda. Um, I was going to ask you about the um, 
Oasis at Furnace Creek, as they're calling it now. Um, I knew it as the Furnace Creek Inn. Right. Well, we, they, we all do. They're of a certain age. I think they call the overall park the Oasis, but it's still the inn at Death Valley, I think, and the ranch at Death Valley. Yeah. And, I and think this, when you look it up. One of the interesting aspects is this is a private inholding, and so um, they're not federally owned buildings, and so... Um, Zantara can can charge what the market will bear um, for for those rooms, and, and certainly the the in the architecture is just spectacular, very vintage. Um, you've got those uh, palm trees outside. I, I forget what what species of palm they are. You've got the swimming pool that's um, fed by one of the warm springs there. Just just incredible. It is. It's well, a beautiful setting. Again, one of the mo- most enjoyable parts of staying at the inn is uh, early in the morning uh, getting a cup of coffee and going out and sitting on the terrace that faces the Panamint Mountains in the distance uh, when it's not so hot. It, I mean, it depends on what time of year you're there, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the sun comes up uh, behind the behind the building and starts shining on the mountains uh, across, the, across the way, and they, they turn a golden color um, that... To me, that that's one of the outstanding uh, features of uh, of staying there. I we really really enjoy that. And but it is a nice building, and I think there as well as the Awani and you know National Park lodges have never gotten a very good reputation regarding the food that they serve. And uh, I think they, that's improved greatly. It has, yeah. and especially at at these high end mm-hmm. uh, lodges like uh, the Inn of Death Valley. I, you know, they take pride in the food they serve, and they generally hire good chefs. So mm-hmm. you do get a good meal there, although it, it's more expensive than you would pay in, in most restaurants. I think a basic room there might be like $460, uh, right um, to $500 or so. Yeah, yeah, I just checked, and um, right now in, in March, or in, yeah, in March, um, anywhere between 480 and 500 a night, or, or a casita will run you almost 600 a night. Um, if you're um, planning for the fall, which is a good time to visit Death Valley, um, the rates range from roughly 400 to uh, $530 or so. So, You know, it's, it's interesting, in, in Death Valley, they have four lodges, uh, and only one of them is actually... Um, Owned by the government, the uh, the other three are private inholdings: right. the Panamint Springs inholding, right. uh, in and the ranch at Furnace Creek, and the inn at Furnace Creek. Only Stovepipe Wells is actually uh, I mean, they're all national park lodges, but is actually owned by the National it's Park not Service. Not an inholding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we're going to have to come back down the road and talk about places like the Panamint Inn because I think those are overlooked treasures. You guys travel a lot. Uh, You've been to the Volcano House at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park? Years ago. Years and years ago. When when I was teaching, uh, I had a kind of an internship at the University of Hawaii. In Oahu. Yeah, in Oahu. And we went over there. We went to uh, Big Island for... Uh, a weekend, we flew over there, and, and we stopped by the Volcano House, but that was the old Volcano House before they closed it down and did the renovations and additions, so we haven't been back there. I'd really like to go back, and it, it's, it's a long walk from Georgia to Hawaii, so we, we haven't been there yet. We'll get the corporate jet fired up and um, get it on the calendar. <laughs> the, the traveler jet, yeah. That's right. That's right. Good, good. Get your ride. What about El Tavar at the Grand Canyon? The El Tovar, 
probably suffers the same type thing that the uh, Old Faithful Inn does, that people are always roaming through the little small lobby. But they do have the upper mezzanine that's kind of nice and private. The rooms are, they've done a nice job keeping the rooms up to date. And And they're all different sizes, aren't they? They are. There are some smaller rooms. And then, of course, the suites are multi-rooms that they've done a a good job with. So it is. I mean, that would be the luxury spot at the Grand Canyon, the south room of the Grand Canyon. But again, there, the prices are not quite as high. A standard room might run you like 300, maybe 350, probably a little less than that. So it's at least under 400. And, you know, I'm not sure that the rooms at Kachina and Thunderbird aren't about as nice as the rooms in the El Tavar. They don't have this. They, they don't have the same atmosphere. They're more like college dorms with nice. But they've redone nice right. They've redone those, and the tile baths even have little elk or or wolves on the yeah. tile. Yeah, tile motif. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that brings up another a good topic about national park lodges is whether to stay outside the park or inside the park, and. Um, I mean, our recommendation, and I guess maybe most people would want to do this, would stay inside the park. I, it, it's some, there's something about staying inside the park boundary at, at one of their lodges that makes the whole experience richer than having to drive back and forth in and out of a park. And that would, an example would be a lot of people visit Yellowstone. They stay in uh, West Yellowstone. And uh, to have to leave in the evening, the evenings are the best time in the park, I think, and the early mornings. Mm -hmm. Those are the two best times to be inside the park. But if you stay outside the park and have to drive in and out each day, you're going to miss a big part of the the best time, I think. And uh, and in any case, many of the hotels nearby the parks are, are just about as expensive as staying in the park. This is hard to believe, but I looked. There's a Hampton Inn uh, in Jackson, which is outside Grand Teton National Park. And, and the Hampton Inn, I think was in June, I checked the price. It's it's over four. It's like $430 a night. Yeah. And that's more expensive than, as it's say, a Jackson Lake Lodge, if you could get a room there. But Well, the, the, the going uh, joke in Wyoming is that the billionaires in Jackson pushed out the millionaires. So, um, not, oh, not too yeah. I wonder why you left there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, there are, though, a lot of national parks that don't have lodging in them. I mean, uh, Rocky, Mount, Rocky Mountain National Park, Wind Cave National Park, Theodore Roosevelt National Park, uh, Painted Desert National Park. Right. Most of them don't oh, have lodges. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Acadia. Acadia. Petrified Acadia Forest National really Park. I'm sorry. Yeah. Acadia really doesn't have any lodges in the park. Of course, that's kind of a spotty park anyway. And the busiest park of all, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Mm -hmm. doesn't have a a regular lodging facility in in the park. Everglades has the tents now, but after the hurricanes uh, destroyed the the Flamingo Lodge, there's no real permanent lodging there either. No, they're working on it. Going back to Great Smokies for a moment, though, have you ever stayed at LeConte Lodge? We have we, not stayed no, there or right. visited there, but you have, haven't you? No, I haven't. I, I want oh, to. Oh. <laughs> Dude, what a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it on the calendar. <laughs> yeah. No, we haven't. We haven't done that. And we haven't stayed at, 
at the two back uh, the lodging and glaciers. Glacier, We've only yeah. stayed at the main lodges there. Yeah, we're, yeah, get, we're getting old, Kurt. We can't <laughs> hike and and ride horses anymore. We're older, old. older, not yeah. old, David. Older, older than we were yesterday. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been fun talking about some of these uh, incredible, beautiful, expensive lodges in the national park system to stay at. Um, we will have to um, continue this conversation, and, and as I had mentioned earlier, look at some of the. Um, Possibly undiscovered jewels like the the Panama Inn or or even uh, Roosevelt Lodge in Yellowstone, which uh, I know a lot of people like, even though it's uh, more rustic than uh, certainly um, Lake Hotel. It's right. hard. It's hard to get a room there because they fill up quickly. And one one we didn't mention, just get in the end of the show, is the the Inn at the Presidio is really a oh, a, right. a, a nice lodge too uh, in, uh, in San, San Francisco. Francisco. So uh, and parking's cheap. Uh, downtown is fifty, sixty dollars a night out there. What is eight dollars or six or something? Right. Anyway, I just want to get that in. But yeah. it's been nice talking with you. Yeah, we appreciate it. We've been talking with David and Kay Scott, authors of the complete guide to the National Park Lodges, um, to discuss some of these elegant lodgings in the national park system. And down the road, we'll bring them back on to talk about some other lodging possibilities. Thanks so much for joining us today, guys. We enjoyed it. Thanks Thank for you. the invitation. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For the latest news on whether coronavirus is impacting the parks, be sure to check nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rabincheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.